Good morning, Crosspoint family. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you would open with me to Luke uh, chapter 22. As you guys are finding your way there, I, I struggled for a little bit of a way to think of how to, to start this morning, but I, I wanted to tell you that it took 20 years, not, not to write this beginning, but 20 years uh, for me to receive uh, my letter. Right For the first several years I was waiting for it, I, I didn't think much of it, knowing eventually that would probably come. And then um, sometimes I'd forget about it, and then something would happen, and I, I kind of remember that um, I hadn't gotten it yet. And then more time would pass. Eventually, my wife, she got the letter, and I still hadn't gotten mine yet. Uh, then it was last spring, spring of, of 2021, when I finally received my letter. I was, I was summoned for jury duty. Uh, yeah, right? So you may have different feelings about that. Uh, maybe some of you have done that multiple times. Maybe for some of you, um, you're still waiting on, on your letter. Um, but I, I can say I was actually genuinely curious about this because I'd never experienced it before. Uh, I, have, I have a friend at work whose wife is a lawyer, so I'd heard stories about the court system from, um, from him. I have some really good friends, one of which I'm going running with tomorrow morning, who are involved in the foster care system. I've heard many and heartbreaking stories and just um, difficulties in, in the court system as well, but I was just genuinely curious as to what that might be like. Um, so despite all those stories, I was excited to have that experience myself. Now, here's the thing, in thinking through this and kind of starting this off, my, my story doesn't really go very far. What it amounted to last summer was me spending a couple of mornings during different weeks um, reading a book and, and talking to some people in the courtroom basement around me. And so I, I don't really have any experience in, in a courtroom setting. And so as we're moving into Luke 22 this morning, and we're going to see Jesus on trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus before Herod, and Jesus before Pilate, I was just thinking about, like, how, how to kind of begin this. And then I thought, you know, well, I do have some experience. Uh, my son turns 13 today. I, I'm a proud parent of a, of a teenager now. And I can recall back to my teenage years uh, being in the role of defendant, right, when um, I would want to present my case for why I didn't have to mow the lawn on Saturday morning when the grass was going to be there in the afternoon to my parents. And then I think about a little bit later into um, adulthood and parenthood and standing in the role of, of judge uh, for my kids uh, sometimes they'll be out in the backyard, and I can't see them, but I can hear that things aren't going well in the backyard, and they're, they're arguing, and I know pretty soon that they're going to come to me, and we're going to uh, see some, hopefully some sort of resolution there. And um, there have been times where um, they've come to me uh, as, as, as the judge in this particular instance, and I've, I've dutifully listened to all their evidence they're presenting uh, and tried to help them come to some sort of resolution. And then other times, if after service you want to go and uh, talk to my older son, Asher, younger son, Eli, they can probably tell you there have been times when they've come to me and I've already had a decision made in my head. If you're a parent, you can probably, um, uh, you probably share that same experience when if you've got more than one kid have come to you with an argument, you've already got something kind of decided in your head. And so as we begin to move into Luke 22 this morning, I want to kind of go there for a moment because we're going to see Jesus brought before some different people, some of which already had a decision made in their head, they had an idea what the outcome was going to be before it ever started. And as we go into Luke 22 this morning then, we're going to turn our attention to what looks to be the trial and sentencing of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. See, we're going to hear of accusations thrown at our Lord that are just patently false. You're going to hear other accusations and uh, statements like, Jesus is king that are actually true but have been twisted by men into something 
different than what they truly mean. We're going to see them do that in order to accomplish what they think are their sinful desires, but we're going to see something else being carried out as we walk towards the cross with Jesus. We're going to see some people actively rejecting our Lord here this morning in our scripture reading in their words, in their actions, and in their thoughts. And you're going to see some who are just indifferent to Jesus. Their only reason for wanting anything to do with him is for their own amusement or to see their own desires fulfilled. People passively rejecting Christ by walking in ways of following the world rather than following Jesus. As we walk towards Je- with Jesus towards his crucifixion, his death, as we read in Luke 22 this morning, as we read and as we study together in God's word about the trial before the Sanhedrin, before Herod, before Pilate, we're going to be faced this morning about who Christ is to us. And the question I want us to ponder of, what is your heart before Christ? You find yourself here this morning coming to church, actively rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord, living in open rebellion to the God of the universe who's poured out his love and mercy and grace at the cross that we sang about this morning. Are you passively rejecting Christ, quietly allowing the world to shape and form who you are rather than turning to the cross and letting the God who will and can shape you in the likeness of Christ. And so would you open your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to Luke 22. We're going to start in verse 63, all towards the end of Luke 22. Just last week, we read about how Jesus had been betrayed, arrested, and is now in the custody of guards who have no regard for him. So in Luke 22, verse 63, it reads, The men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, Prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things to him. So as you step into this scene, we see Jesus being mocked by those around him who don't understand that the very God of the universe is in their midst in the person of Jesus Christ. We see them beat Jesus and inflict physical pain on his body. We see them shout to him while beating him, prophesy, who is it that hit you? Again, mocking and belittling him. As we read through this, I I think about all the, the physical pain that Christ would have endured in these last moments of his earthly life. And I, I don't have a lot of experience that personally. I know that there are some of you here in our family of believers who have experienced great amounts of, of physical pain, emotional pain in your lives, and maybe you can connect a little bit with what Jesus would have been through, uh, been going through in that physical form of, of pain and torture. The sear, searing pain of torture and brutality is, is fully man and human. And when I think about it for too long, it kind of turns my stomach a little bit. But I do want us to also not only focus on the physical pain and emotional toll that he would have faced as fully human, but also the spiritual realities this morning as we walk with Jesus towards the cross. I, I will admit it, it's, it's a spiritual reality that I fail to fully grasp around, but it is something I know and trust that God, having taken on human form in Jesus' Son, will soon die for the sins of mankind so that those who have put their faith and their trust in him might be saved. As I wrote that, it brought to mind the very first Bible verse that I ever memorized. We sang about this morning. It comes from the book of John, verse 16, from the third chapter. And it reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I thought, as a child, I stopped there so often, right? That was the passage that we had learned And so I want to read on just a little bit with you this morning to the next couple of verses to kind of frame and shape what we're going to be talking about for the remainder of this morning. 
And so I want to read to you verses 17 and 18 that follow that passage from John 3.16. Verses 17 and 18 read, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Today, as we study, we're going to see Jesus brought before important people of the day. We're going to see these people assume that they have some sort of control over what will happen with Jesus in the next several hours. They're going to question him. Some of them will be enraged by his answers to him. Some of them will just plainly be confused by his answers, not understanding his purposes for being there. We're going to see a couple questions asked of Jesus. Are you the son of God? And are you the king of the Jews? We're going to see people who've heard of Jesus, but only to be amused by him or shown signs by him, with no regard for who he is. So as we read and study this morning, we'll be faced with several times again that question, just who is Jesus? So this morning as we study together, brothers and sisters, we again gather around God's word and remind each other of who Jesus is to us. So as we continue on in Luke chapter 22, as morning dawns after Jesus' arrest, we walk into the first scene here at the end of Luke 22. Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin can be thought of as the supreme court of ancient Israel. It's made up of 70 men, which would have been from groups like the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and other uh, religious and aristocratic leaders of the day. We're going to see them question Jesus, and they're going to demand for Jesus to tell them whether he is the Messiah. So let's turn to verse 66 together and read, where it picks up, When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They said, If you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, If I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all asked, are you then the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we have heard it ourselves from his mouth. This part in Luke is interesting. We've been studying Luke for quite some time now. And this interaction is not the first time that the Pharisees or the Sadducees had confronted Jesus. In the past several months, we've actually been studying several instances where this has happened where Jesus has been confronted about who he is. If you think back to early January in Luke 20, we read and studied about the scribes and the chief priests confronting Jesus and trying to trap him in his words, trying to get him to say something against Rome so they could have their plan to have him arrested, carried out. But in that instance, what we see is Jesus turn the light back to their hearts and their motives for questioning him in the first place about who he is. He perceives their schemes and answers in such a way that reveals their true motives. And just after that, we, you can read about the Sadducees coming to see Jesus and asking him questions about the resurrection. And again, trying to trap him in his own words. And yet Jesus, knowing their heart, shines the light back towards their intent. These people have no motives to follow Jesus or to know he is. They're in open rebellion to God in the flesh and the person of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And so as we turn back to this passage, our scripture, the Sanhedrin again, they were the judicial court of Israel and had a well-established way that they would have gone about their proceedings. Not unlike our court system as well, there's many rules and regulations. And even though I don't have a lot of experience in our, our court, I did a little research to think about how this should have gone as um, a trial for Jesus. And we can see as we um, see him in front of the Sanhedrin that if we take the accounts of Luke along with the other gospel accounts of John and, and from Matthew and also from Mark, you can see all the ways that this, this court proceeding with Jesus flew in the face of what and violated what would have normally been their uh, assembled order. Uh, you can read in John about the proceedings taking place at the high priest's house instead of the temple where it should have been, that Jesus was tried without any type of a defense. In Matthew, you can read about uh, the testimonies of witnesses that would have come before uh, the Sanhedrin in this trial that had conflicting accounts of Jesus, which should have, by their proceedings, just thrown out the evidence altogether. And you can even read in Mark where the high priest is actually the one that declares that Jesus was um, guilty of blasphemy. And the way this should have happened, though, would have been from the least senior member all the way up eventually to the high priest. And so why kind of go back through some of these, these motives and things that were not from the established order for this particular trial? Because it just points us back to the idea that their motives for questioning Jesus in the first place um, were not to seek who he was. In John's gospel account of Jesus being questioned by the high priest, Jesus actually states, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the temple where all Jews come together, and I've said nothing in secret. Jesus is laying bare the motives of these men before him. The heart of the matter is the, their heart before Christ. Jesus knows their only desire is to see him silenced, yet in the midst of this sham of a trial, the lies being told and the decision about Jesus that these men had already made, when they question him about whether he is the Messiah, he speaks directly to them about their hearts and shares with them what is to come. Jesus tells them, if I do tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Right here, Jesus again revealing who he is, that he is God made flesh, who made his dwelling among us. And we read that in John 1. Matthew 1 tells us that Jesus is God, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus' own words, he says, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. You read in Hebrews 1 is a beautiful picture of encapsulating what Jesus just said here in this moment, where it says that he, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word, and then after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Throughout the questions and the attempts to trap Jesus, the seeming control these men would have had, thought they had over the situation and their current circumstances, God is working out his plan of salvation through Jesus the Son. And so even in those moments, though, in one last attempt to trap him, the, the men asked then, are you the Son of God? And this is the question, as we think about and contemplate our heart before God, that we must answer as well. Is Jesus the Son of God? This is the question that we're contemplating and thinking about this morning. So before we continue this morning and continue on our reading, I want us to pause here for a moment and think about how you would answer that question. We sing about it here this morning. Our children back beyond those double doors are learning about it as well. Some of you may be answering that question and thinking about this morning of who is Jesus to you? And maybe you're like these men living in open rebellion to God. Our prayers for you as the family of God this morning 
are that you would come to a saving faith through Christ. Some of you sitting here this morning would answer yes to that question, but then you might be terrified to follow up with any question some might ask you as to why. And we'll hear just a little bit of something that happened with last week with a, a, one of our little um, brothers in Christ in the back uh, that'll be a great reminder for us to the boldness that can be declared, uh, the boldness that we can declare Christ as Lord, even, even from an eight-year-old boy. Some of you here this morning, like the, the little brother in Christ, I'm going to share a story with you later on, might be able to say yes and give testimony to how you know that Christ is Lord. You could point us to the scriptures and remind us of that very truth. And so I want us to keep that question central in our minds of just who is Jesus, that he is the very son of God, that he is our salvation. But when the Sanhedrin asked this question, Jesus replies with this phrase, you say that I am. And bears repeating, this isn't the first time that they've come to him asking about who he is or by what authority he speaks. And so he tells them simply, you say that I am. This phrase could also be thought to mean that is what you infer or you say so. Yet in the mind of the Sanhedrin here in this moment, even though faced with the God of all creation and the person of Jesus Christ, they've heard enough in their eyes. They believe that they've captured Jesus in his own words. They believe that they've judged him rightly, and they're ready to continue on to the next phase of this mock trial. However, this is not what is going on. The leadership seem to think that they are the judge when, in fact, Jesus is the true judge. See, even though these priests and scribes have declared that Jesus is guilty, being under Roman occupation, they don't even have any ability to carry out the death sentence that they seek. And so they gather up and they go to Pilate here in this next moment. And so if you would turn with me, we're going to continue on to the next scene here we see this morning in Luke chapter 23 as they bring Jesus before Pilate. In Luke 23, verses 1 through 5, it reads, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him, Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. So as you walk into this scene, we see Jesus' accusers flinging charges at Pilate. And there's three that really stand out in this text. One, Jesus is misleading the nation. Two, that Jesus has forbidden them to give tribute to Caesar. And three, that Jesus says that he is a king. So we see in their desire to hold on to earthly power, which is so often the case in anyone in this time period and any beyond, in a desire to hold on to earthly power, there's a failure to recognize that Jesus is, is God's son. And so they may even believe that first charge to be true, that they said that Jesus is misleading the people. However, Jesus is um, coming to proclaim the kingdom of God. And this is not in any way, shape, or form an earthly kingdom. Jesus' goal was not to set up some type of new earthly government in that moment. It wasn't even to overthrow the systems in place in the earthly sense of the words. See, in no way, shape, or form was Jesus misleading the people of Israel. In fact, he was leading them to his Father, the God of all creation. The second claim that they make is that Jesus was forbidding them to give tribute to Caesar, again, trying to morph this into some type of politically motivated 
um, accusation. As you read back in Luke 20, where we were just a little bit ago, you can see Jesus being asked the question, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar? See, again, this moment, standing before Jesus, he turns back again to their heart before him and tells these men to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus isn't establishing any sort of political kingdom in opposition to Caesar, but he's establishing God's eternal kingdom. And thirdly, they declare that Jesus has declared himself a king. Once more, they're seeking to twist this truth into a politically motivated one in order to have Pilate side with them in their desire to have Jesus silenced and crucified and killed. As we read through these accusations one by one, I want us to be reminded this morning that Jesus is not misleading the people. In fact, he's come to bring redemption of sin and to lead the people to God. Jesus didn't forbid people from giving tribute to Caesar. While the systems and governments of our world are present realities that we live in, for those that are found in Christ, they pale in comparison to our present-day citizenship in heaven and our eternal citizenship to come. Jesus didn't come as any type of earthly king. In John's account of Jesus before Pilate, there's a recorded of Jesus saying to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. See, in all their fervent ambition to maintain some type of control, they've ultimately missed the point that Jesus isn't beholden to any political ideology. This is the Son of God before them, the Word made flesh. In John's Gospel, we read that the true light of the world and to all those who receive him, who believe in his name, have been given the right to become children of God, born not of a natural descent, born not of the will of the flesh, and not of man, but of God. And brothers and sisters here this morning, that's the reality in which we live as followers of Christ, that we call one another to as we gather and as we disperse here this afternoon. Yet here in this moment, we see it's not the reality of those accusing Jesus. And it's peculiar to me to see that even Pilate doesn't view Jesus as one deserving of death based on the claims of those who brought Jesus before him. And he even declares that he finds no guilt in Jesus. And this is a true statement as Jesus is the pure and sinless sacrifice. Jesus is the pure and sinless sacrifice. Just last week through those double doors, I was back serving in Sun Chasers, sitting with our children, and Sherry Bowles was teaching, and she was uh, talking about some of the Old Testament laws and some of the Old Testament customs that we no longer follow. And she asked the question of all of the children, which is sometimes a dangerous thing to do because you're never quite sure what they're going to say. But she asked the question, what are some of the Old Testament practices that maybe we don't follow anymore? And there's a little, he's probably four or five, shoots his hand up and yells, animal sacrifice. I thought that was interesting because I wasn't expecting that to be the first answer that anyone said. And he says, animal sacrifice. And Sherry says, yeah, that's true. We don't do that anymore. And right at that moment, one of our eight-year-old little brothers in Christ tugs on my shoulder. He goes, "As, as many of them do, They're not fully engaged in listening to what's going on in a super intensive way, but they're hearing it and bringing it in and taking it in. He goes, Joel, I keep reading this little part in my Bible. And it was in the margin of his Bible. And he goes, I keep reading this. My eyes keep getting stuck on this little part, which I thought was interesting turn of phrase. So I, I look, and he's got his Bible open to John 1. And he's pointing to this passage in the beginning of John 1 where John the Baptist looks to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And in that moment, he reminded me that Jesus is the pure and sinless sacrifice. Little eight-year-old brother there, reminding another brother in Christ of who Jesus is to him. So as we continue on through this passage this morning, and are continually faced with this idea of what is your heart before Christ, I want us to be reminded that each of us are called as brothers and sisters of Christ to remind one another who Christ is to us. Meaning that he's the one who we can call in the name of Jesus is who we are saved by, that we might die to ourselves and live to Christ as a way of life. See, even though Pilate makes this declaration of not guilty for Jesus, the religious leaders there persist and say to him, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And this gives Pilate an out. It gives him an opportunity to, to push Jesus aside, to push him off to someone else. And so often we see it in our world today, and it happens with each of us from time to time as well. And so as we pick up into verse number 6 through 13 here, we're going to read about what happens with Pilate as he sends him off to Herod. In verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked that the man was a Galilean. And finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. The chief priest and the scribe stood by, vehemently accusing him, and then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies reading the history of these two men, that there had been some problems between them, but this day and this moment, they kind of gathered together in friendship over their rejection of Christ. More interesting, what I want to turn back to is, is Herod, what it says about him, that he was glad to see Jesus and for a long time had wanted to see him. See, this isn't actually the first time in Luke's gospel where it's referenced that Herod wanted to see Jesus. Earlier, if we read back in chapter 9, uh, we studied there probably about a year and a half ago, we see that Herod was perplexed by Jesus, it says, and hoping to see him. He had heard about this teacher um, from out in the countryside, and eventually he gets his chance, and we read that right now in Luke chapter 23. Herod's hoping to see some sort of miracle or sign performed by Jesus. So it says, Herod had long heard about Jesus, was hoping to get something from him, namely it says here to see a miracle performed. So Herod knew of Jesus, but he completely missed knowing Jesus is Lord. His chief desire was to get something from him. Brothers and sisters, it's possible to know who Jesus is, to be around the things of God, and to completely miss knowing Jesus as the Lord of your life in every aspect, way, shape, and form. And so we must be continually pointing one another as the body of Christ to Christ as our Lord as a way of our lives, not only here on a Sunday morning gathering, but in each and every interaction we have with one another as we walk into the world um, week by week. We're not called as followers of Jesus to a life of complacency, but rather we're called to take up our crosses daily and follow Jesus, a heart and a life that's situated in such a way that we're continually learning to make less of ourselves and more of our Savior. See, in this passage, once Herod realizes that he's not in control, that Jesus is not going to give him what he wants, the contempt and mocking begin anew, and Jesus is sent back to Pilate one final time here. We come to the last scene in our reading this morning as we find Jesus with Pilate and an ever-growing crowd around him. 
Three weeks ago, Dave was teaching through the early parts of Luke 22, and there's a phrase he used that caught my attention. I want us to bring back front and center this morning as, as we gather around this last passage in Luke 23. And it's simply that Jesus is in control. Even in the chaos of what we are about to read, brothers and sisters, Christ is in control. God is working out his plan of salvation through this scene. And so in verse 13 in Luke 23, we read that Pilate called together the chief priests and the leaders of the people and said to them, you have brought this man as one who is misleading the people. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with these things you accuse him of. Neither is Herod because he sent him back to us. Clearly he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I have him whipped and release him. And then they all cried out together, take this man away, release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for rebellion that had taken place in the city and also for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why, what has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and for murder, but handed Jesus over to their wills. So as you read through this, this interaction with Pilate and, and the people, we see the crowd whipped into a frenzy, even when Pilate tries to placate them with the custom of releasing a prisoner during the Passover, they choose the man Barabbas, a known murderer and rebel. And we declares that he will have Jesus whipped and then released, which was a brutal physical punishment in and of itself. The crucifixion of Jesus is called for. So why did Pilate not come to the conclusion that the charges brought against Jesus were true? Again, like that little brother in Christ back reminded us, because they were not. Yet he gives in to their demands and turns Jesus over to their wills. Ultimately, what was taking place here, though, this reading, is not the silencing of a rebel. It wasn't the killing of an enemy of Rome. What's happening in this moment is the very plan of redemption through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And in case we're too quick to not see ourselves in the crowd, remember that we too are each sinners saved by the grace of God. And you read in Romans 5, it says that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up here this morning to lead us in singing about our Lord and our Savior Jesus. As we turn our hearts towards worship of Jesus through song, I want to invite you to prayerfully consider your heart this morning towards Christ. Do you find yourself living a life of open rebellion to Jesus Christ? May our prayers be that the Spirit of God would work in your life in a way to recognize the grace and forgiveness that can be found at the cross. You come here this morning dabbling in the things of Christianity, looking to God when it's convenient but scorning Jesus when it's not. We remind us more that Jesus doesn't call us as a people to himself so that we can follow him in some sort of superficial manner, but to offer our very lives, each and every part of it, as a living sacrifice, as worship to God. And you find yourself pulled to and fro by the voices around you in this world. 
pull towards the lesser things rather than Christ. Be reminded this morning that our hope is not in the things of this life, but rather in the one who authored our faith, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him. He endured the cross, that our hope is not in the things of this life. He was despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Brother and sister in Christ, we follow the very one who has brought us out of death into new life, made us a new creation, and now sits at the right hand of the Father through Jesus. Through Jesus, you have been restored. Through Jesus, you have been healed. Through Jesus, you have been redeemed. And through Jesus, you have been forgiven. Before we close, I want to read you from the beginning of Hebrews, verses one through three. Read, long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the God that we serve, God through whom you've been restored, healed, redeemed, and forgiven. Jesus is seated on his throne this morning, amen.